Hi, this is the podcast Queer Margins and I'm Reese T. Matthews. There are just a few interviews left from the first series which I've really enjoyed doing but haven't had a chance to publish yet. So over the next few weeks I'll be putting them out as special episodes before I move on to working on the second series, more of which at the end of the episode. First, this is episode 15, Chris. You'll hear Chris talking about some patients and about his work. He spent time working as a patient representative, which meant using his own experiences of having HIV to help people who have been diagnosed continue living their lives. I met Chris at an event at the City of London Guildhall, which was linked to the project AIDS since the 80s, back in last summer. We started talking at the cloakroom and it transpired that he had a lot of stories. So I met up with him a few weeks later in his house in Vauxhall and chatted over his dining table. So here he is. Because it didn't exist, I think, when I was coming out, it was definitely there. I was, I was aware of being different, I suppose, you know, kind of, um, or not fancying girls in the same way. And I so, so, yeah, before 10. But it wasn't until my mid-teens that I, or my teens that I learned it was wrong. Did you learn that gay was wrong or did you learn that what you were feeling was wrong? Like, did you make the, that connection? Yes, I did make that connection, how yes. That, how did you learn that it was wrong, I guess? What, was it just people's general attitudes? I, I think it was people's general attitude, yes. J- just things you picked up, you yeah. know what I mean? Sort of, why wasn't I like everybody else, therefore mm. it must be strange. And, and certainly one or two sexual encounters were, were sort of of the, um, you know, kind of... Involve subterfuge, or you know what I mean, sort of, or you know what I mean, sort of. Mm, yeah. um, uh, certainly, by thirteen, I was trying to s- wondering what was going on, right. why I was different. And how old were you when you told your parents, or like? Um, I was sixteen. Okay, that's pretty yeah. early. Yeah, I was sixteen. What made you want to tell them? Um, I was actually caught at school having sex with somebody else. That'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I had to tell him. And he was, he was, how can I put it, academically challenged. Right. I was quite bright, so I was a year above him, but he was a year older than me. So he got his marching orders immediately. I was allowed back to do my Oxford entrance exams and things like that. Oh, wow, so he got thrown out of school. Yeah. Oh, I did too, really. But I, I was doing my Oxford entrance exam. And, you know, kind of, he was one of the great sportsmen in the school. And it's sort of, um, yeah. We actually met up yeah, years did later. Say, did you say, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was working in the uh, north of England and um, my secretary got a call from his secretary. I was about 25. Uh, would I go and play for the local rugby team? Because I used to play on the wing. And... Um, and I went, I haven't played rugby for years, you know what I mean? So let's meet for a drink kind of thing. So it was arranged and, and we got awfully smashed. Um, but, you know, this, uh, you know, somebody I was in love with who was, in my eyes, was beautiful and a, a wonderful sportsman turned up, overweight, four kids, married, you know what I mean? Sort of, uh, sort of like 27 or something like that. And uh, right at the end of the evening, he did say to me he wondered whether it would be the same as before. I was quite shocked, and I had to point out that I had a boyfriend and he had a wife and kids. Um, so nothing, you know, kind of... But it was, it was actually one of 
yeah, the great loves of my life. Yeah. Um, so did you spend much time like on the scene then? Did you go out? No, there was no scene, Bernie. Right. I mean, one of them, yeah, went to the opening night of Heaven. Right. You know, goodness gracious. I mean, that, that was like totally revolutionary. Right. All of our straight friends wanted to go. Yeah, we used to have dinner at this table and then go off to 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 heaven. But but you know, kind of it, with the 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 gay scene prior to that. Don't forget, it was illegal. I know my my when I was at uni, my oh, I, I can't remember why I was in hospital or something, you know. Um, but anyway, my my older lover visited me, and the hospital called the police, you know, because I was under twenty one. So I I think the two, I mean, the strange thing is, say, you know, being sent to bad shrinks, you know, particularly version therapy, and coming across that kind of thing made me angry, wanted to change things. It didn't, didn't oppress me in any way, Mm. you know, kind of, you know, kind of, this this was, this was outrage at ridiculous society, but, but on, on the whole, Yes, my by being gay never stopped me from doing anything. What what happened when they called the police? Oh, I I think you know, kind of. I, I think I rang up my parents and say, "Will you, will you just tell them that oh, you know he's a friend of a family or something yeah. like that?" Jesus Christ! That's I know, I know. But lots of people, you know, they were pretty policemen in cottages and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think university. I mean, you know, kind of. Um, yeah, I mean. There was lots of, lots of sex, but they, the gay community really looks after each other as well. I can remember, you know, I must have been about 70 or 18 when I hit London. You know, never had, knew nothing about sexually transmitted infections or anything like that. And, and I get crabs and, and, you know, kind of, and this young lover actually rang me up and said, you know, no, he actually sat me down and said, every gay man has a duty to have a checkup every three months. Okay. And took me along to James Bringle House, which morphed into Mortimer Market, wherever. Ah, okay. And you know, kind of, um, you know, kind of, um, that was a lesson learned. Mm. I mean, I didn't know yeah. what these things were. I tried to scrub it off with Ajax. Oh, you Jesus. know, you could, you couldn't, you know, there was no Mister Google. <laughs> oh God, you, you know, you know, you know what I mean. Sort of, I mean, you forget how dirty everybody was and everything was. In the 50s? Really? Well, people still didn't have bathrooms. Oh. You know, kind of, and, you know, kind of, oral sex was unheard of because people only bathe once a week. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that you got, that you were saying, like, you sort of looked after each other. That's what happens today, I think. It's like, not, I guess, not to the same extent, but, like, I don't think that's ever happened with, like, straight people, really. Like, that kind of... Openness, I think, to be able to talk about. It. I, I think I think you're right to a certain extent, although increased. You know, there is so much information out there. Yeah. But the problem is, when you're young and you know you may be the only gay in the village. Sorry to use the phrase, but you know what I mean. You actually need someone to to tell you it's okay. Definitely. Did you experience much homophobia then? No. That's interesting. Not not really. I think. Um, no, I, I, I just don't... I think, I think I wasn't bullied at school. Mm-hmm. I, I think my boyfriend at school, who was a great sportsman, was a little bit of a protector, and I think people knew something was going on. You know, kind of, come on, it's an academic mm. four eyes and... 
captain of various sports. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not being careful. Uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of yeah. going around together, mm-hmm. but yeah. not going around together, having yeah, yeah. their own groups as well. You know what I mean? Sort of, yeah. But um, you know, I think I think people. But there again, I was running all kinds of groups and. Mm. You know, kind of getting girls in for dance classes and teaming up, matching schools up, and you know what I mean, sort of. And I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's interesting. It, it's a so. Yeah, I don't. I don't think at uni I, I experienced anything. I never joined Gay Sock. Right. I think they had started. I think I think they started calling it Gay Sock as well. But no, again, I didn't feel I needed to mm-hmm. it wasn't out of embarrassment or anything like that it's just so I didn't yeah. need to yes. yeah. you know kind yeah. of and um, and you know kind of yeah and I had you know I was building up quite quite a, a co- you know kind of a community of gay friends and I also had casual sets yeah I read a couple of articles about you um, when particularly that was like in The Independent, I think. Right. Um, and it spoke about your uh, partner of 12 years. Yeah. How did you meet um, How did you meet? Him? That was late 20s. Uh, I was in my late 20s. Um, and I'd had short-term partners in my 20s. I, I think um, some disastrous, some I'm still friends with. Uh, and I met this guy um, in a pub. Robert, is it? Yeah, yeah, Robert. I met Robert in a pub. And it was like lust at first sight. I think that was... And uh, he lived in a sordid room in Chelsea, like Elsie. And um, in Tight Street. Um, you know, kind of... He was great... F- you know, for him to live in Tight Street, like Oscar Wilde, you know, that was, that was important. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, it was, I, I suppose, mind-blowing sex. Um, I, I had a car. Uh, I don't think he did at that time. Uh, you know, I can't, can't remember. Anyway, and uh, so we met in a pub in the King's Road. And it was incredible sex. It was just, like, extraordinary. Chalk and cheese, he was... Very, I, I think I've always been quite solid. You know what I mean. He was m- much more social butterfly, I would say. And so I, we agreed to meet, and then I get a message saying um, he wasn't feeling well. Now, how many times have you been given the elbow by saying that? Yeah. So my godfather was taking me down to the theatre in Chichester, and I got him to stop off there, and I put a card through the door. And, you know, basically said, you know, and we met the following day. Well, and he had said what? Basically saying, you know, I want to see you. I get well soon. I want to see you. Um, let's have dinner tomorrow. And we did. And I think, I don't know, it sort of, it, it, I'm pretty sure it was more or less, five, six days a week from that moment. Wow. Now, he was a commitment phobe. <laughs> five, six days a week. And he was very sexy. Uh-huh. And um, 
he wasn't flirt. People flirted with him. You know, there were very few restaurants where two men could go out for dinner, for instance. So we're talking, what, 60s. And we were in one in Fulham, I think. Um, and, and this guy walks across the restaurant and gives him his telephone. You know what I mean? This kind of thing would happen in front of me. You know what I mean? He was, he was um, yeah, he had this kind of aura about him. He was the kind of person who could make somebody feel like the only person in the room. Um... And so I actually got jealous, but uh, the relationship continued. Um, he, yeah, I, I, about a year, after about a year, he moved in. Right. Now, he always said he could live out of a suitcase. Well, mm-hmm. fuck that for a laugh. I've for four tri- trips in my car. And, and I don't know, we, we sort of built a life together. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, kind of, and he was an architect and he got asked to, to uh, because his degree was from Johannesburg, um, he was South African, um, you know, kind of, he had to do part three at Oxford, you know, I sort of said, look, if you're going to have to do part three, you know, to, so you can become, uh, an, you know, kind of um, an associate of this architectural firm, you might as well do it at one of the best universities, and the, you know, you kind of always go to the best. Yeah. So the dining table became, you know, the office. And I learned a lot about architecture during that. <laughs> Just by proxy. And yes, and then we were going to a wedding in Oxford, and one of my ex-boyfriends um, had met, who I, I met when I was about twenty-five, and he was underage. So I freaked out all my friends, but um, but you know, kind of um, the relationship lasted. Couple of years, but, but then he tried to commit suicide. And his mother rang me up, and he came to live with me in this house. And then, and in this house. yes, in this house. So, so you know, ex, ex and present lovers. And, <laughs> and and then he met this 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 older man who had two sons, and and they had a house in Oxfordshire. So we were going to to this uh, wedding in Oxford, and so. Um, my ex's new partner said, can I bring the kids to London? You have the house in Oxfordshire. So we were terribly hungover after this, this wedding in Oxford in the countryside, and Robert couldn't afford to buy in London. And the, the one thing I've learned over the years is, you know, help your, help your partners get on the property. You know, you, know, kind of, you don't want people beholden to you. You know what I mean? You know, kind of whatever. However... And we fell in love, and we started looking for a place in Oxfordshire which he could afford. And and so we became, you know, two car, two home. Wow. So we created this home in the country as well. Um, and my parents, who'd always, you know, kind of um, accepted my partners, just took to it. It's just, it was just extraordinary. Mm. Um, and I think by this time they got used to, you know, by this time when I met him at 29, so, and he was 29 or 28 or 29. And so, yeah, they helped us, you know, because I've got a picture of Robert and my father, you know, mixing concrete, you know, coming sort of, and... <clears throat> So, so yeah, and he got on with my sisters, and he was estranged from his family. Um, okay. His brother was reborn Christian, so 
yeah, exactly, gay and all this kind of thing. Yeah. And so it was, yeah, everybody got on with him, and I got on with his friends. I'm, you know, I'm still friends with his friends mm-hmm. wow. all over the world. Um, some of the gay ones died, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of his, his friends, one of his friends designed Studio 54, so, you know, I mean, you know, it was that kind of, so you had your own private tour. Um, you know, so, you know, but he was incredibly naughty, you know what I mean? Well, he, he went over, he, you know, I reckon he got HIV when he went over for the bicentennial celebrations in 76, you know, every fleet in the world was in New York Harbour and I think he had worked his way through them all, you know what I mean? That was him. Yeah. That was him. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I loved him, mm-hmm. I suppose. Because he would do things I wouldn't. Right. Um, and we we had this extraordinary, yeah, we, we you know, we used to fight like mad, apparently. I didn't remember that. But so according, according, according to my godfather, we used to fight like mad and then we'd make up. We, so we built this, and again, you know, kind of, yeah, we used to go to kiss-ins in, in Piccadilly and right. things like that. And hold, hold hands and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of in public places and, yeah, and get away with it. And, and you know, kind of, and even our neighbours, if you like, accepted us as a gay couple. Right. And I hadn't realised how much people had accepted us as a gay couple until he died, really. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Sort of... Um, and when they all turned up at his funeral, you know, kind of, and quite, there's some quite grand neighbours around here, you know what I mean, sort of, and, you know, kind of, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Mm-hmm. He had godchildren, I had godchildren, so we sort of had extended families, he had this eclectic mix of friends, you know, who, David Hockney would paint their portraits, you know oh. what I mean, to, and they turn up, you know, at the cottage, and, and, so, yeah, again, you know, kind of the only time, again, very little homophobia. Mm. The only time, I think, before we committed, we were out trolling, I think. Or we actually went to a cottage, and, I, and uh, I heard Robert suddenly shout out for me. And obviously there were some guys were threatening him or whatever. And I, you know, somehow you just suddenly turn into the Incredible Hulk and sort of become six foot six and wade out there and just... Yes. I've got a very loud voice. <laughs> and, and, you know, kind of, and, yeah, that's the only time I ordered him into the car and, 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 and sort of... and drove off. <laughs> um, I mean, he took me to Hampstead Heath. I'd never been to Hampstead Heath. Right, OK. You know, because I didn't... I'd never found any need to do gay places and things like mm-hmm. that. Disastrous. I get the clap once, and the second time I lost my contact lens and I had to drive home with one eye. <laughs> you lost your contact lens. <laughs> one of my contact lenses somewhere in the mud on Hansen. Yeah, yeah I, 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 it took him a long time, if you like, um, to commit, and then when he did, he did. Mm-hmm. And I never, I never suspect, only, only in the, his last week did I find out that he'd been two-timing me all the time. Really? And, but, but that was him. Right. I mean, he, he asked me why I loved him. Mm-hmm. It was like a, a guilt thing, really. And how do you explain something? 
You mean because he was asking you why? Because he felt guilty about it? Possibly, possibly, yeah. You know, kind of, I mean, you know. Um, I mean, we just got on with our jobs, with our lives, surrounded by friends, and uh, when, you know, when he spent a month in hospital and I told all our friends, you know, because people begin to get what's going on, and I explained, you know, kind of nobody rejected us. Right, that's interesting. Nobody ran away screaming. I think my... I think my godfather had a little bit of difficulty as well. Why? I, I, I think because he came from a very strict Christian background. Um, but he came round <clears> to <throat> it. My parents, I think, got through it extremely well. We never really talked about it um, openly. But, you know, his family didn't come to his funeral. So everybody thought my family was his family. Um, so in a way, it wasn't homophobic. It was it was more the you know kind of that terrible, terrible time in the eighties when people were fearful of of an unknown disease. Yeah. So he was diagnosed with HIV. Was it when he was thirty eight? Uh, yes. No. 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 When he was oh god, I've never worked this out. Okay. So he started getting ill. When he was 32, 33. Right, so you'd been together for about six years? About, about, no, we'd been together, we'd been together, oh God, uh, about five years. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. Four, four or five years. And nobody knew what was going on, and I made him go to James Pringle House, you know, kind of, you know where I'd, I'd been taught to go when I was 17, kind mm-hmm. of thing, and, and by this time I knew the doctors. Anyway. Right. And, and um, they didn't... Uh, nobody they didn't knew anything, what right. it was. Well, no, the, the point is, um, if you think about it, 81, uh, you know, kind of, it was the first Time magazine thing. I think it was called The Gay Plague on the front cover of Time magazine, 1981 in New York. I think 81, 82, I think when, when they diagnosed Robert, it was called H2LV3. I think it was the 11th person to be diagnosed. So, so many unknown quantities. So, and, of course, everybody was dying so quickly. By 82, you know, the floodgates were beginning to open. Mm-hmm. So everybody presumed I had it. But there was no test until... It, well, history books are confused about this because there was a trial which spanned over a year, you see. So, officially, I wasn't diagnosed until 86. But Professor Miller... Um, one of my mentors believes I got I took it in 84, 85 when it was being trialled the, the test you know what yeah. I mean so by this by this time Robert was quite seriously or spending quite a long time in hospital and then he get well and come out again mm-hmm. yeah but yeah the, the the discrimination and stigma was terrible yeah. terrible yeah because you, you said that people were dying quite quickly mm. but from diagnosis well they were all late diagnoses you see Right, I see. So, but, but from diagnosis to when he died, it was six years, was I, Well, I mean, yeah, yes. I mean, he died at the end of 86. Right, OK. So, so New Year's Eve so of 80, 86, 87. Wow. 
over that six years, you said he's like going in and out of hospital. Yeah. Being well, was it? Yeah. Was it? Were there points where he was like completely be fine? fine? No, he'd be weak. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, like that's a long. I haven't. I, yeah, it was very strange when my mother died ten years ago. I was clearing up then, and she'd taken photographs. He was allowed out for his last Christmas. Right, which is about a week. And there was a Polaroid of him, and she'd kept it. And I'd never seen it. Mm. And I think I destroyed it because I didn't want to remember him like that. Sorry, I'm getting emotional. Yeah, sorry, me too, Chris. I think, you know, kind of... um, Yes, it's all a bit vague, you know. It, it was it was sort of an extraordinary time. I mean, you know, in the sense of sort of getting a complete timeline is more or less impossible yeah. because, you know, things weren't being written down. You didn't know what was going on. I do know in 80-81 we were going to private doctors and trying to find out what was going on. And he was a terrible patient. <laughs> I would have to you know, feed him chocolate whirls and... and what, and find Biltong and could, could even make, make a terrible fuss about being ill. So, so it, it was all a little bit strange. I know sort of, um, yeah, that last Christmas, I mean, I, that, the, the, the previous summer, you know, kind of, I, I had written a show that I was in rehearsal for and he slipped into a coma um, before Christmas, and um, and I commuted from the north of England uh, by train every day just to see him. And of course, typical him, you know, one day I turn up and and um, and he's conscious. And he's saying, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> you know. And yeah, so but but you know, kind of the actual dates of going in and out of hospital, I don't, you know. You were in a, pr- a private room in the pr- private wing because there were no wards, you know what I mean? Some doctors wouldn't go in the room, you know, kind of, some nurses would be over-enthusiastic and try and get people to, to you know, meet. Oh, God, I remember, you know, kind of um, actually an ex-girlfriend and her two children wanted to visit. And this nurse went into meltdown and called security and the matron and because she wanted to wear barrier nursing, rather like Ebola nurses, and, and we refused. But, yeah, I saw the horrible things, like, you know, like um, you know, people pushing trays of food in with broom handles, and people, you know, even junior doctors refusing to go into the room. As for cleaning, you know, forget it. You know, I would go in with my rubber gloves. Um, so... And I, I, I think psychologically that that was the most. <clears throat> I think I think when he was diagnosed, we um, we had a friend who worked, who was a pilot, and he used to bring us the San Francisco Bay Reporter, and then we'd copy it and give the co- get to the the doctors because pre-internet yeah. communication was difficult, and. And you get all these rumours, like you buy, you know, food preservatives, because this was the latest rumour that <coughs> counteracted massive doses of, of vitamin C. But the cancer clinic in Bristol refused to see him, have him there. And, and um, Indian gurus, you know, drink urine and, you know. Um, you, I mean, you know, kind of when there's nothing you can do, you, you clash at straws. Um, 
But we made a pact to not to carry on as long as possible, not let it affect our lives. Uh, we then made a pact to tell everybody, and we kept it secret for about three years. Um, I would say I told a hundred people in a, in a month. So I think I think our plan was to actually carry on and defy this, not be in denial. Mm-hmm. And to help the doctors as much as possible, and take part in as much research as possible. Okay. Um, that I took into, you know, I think I've tried every medication going. I, I, I was involved in the first trial. So you made the possible worst situation you're facing in your life into a challenge. Mm-hmm. And I think this helps helped everybody rise to the occasion. I remember him going back to work once, and I think we bought 56 mugs for everybody in the office and, and had everybody's name put on it, because in those days, people thought you could get it through drinking vessels. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were no problems from the cleaners or anybody else. I mean, this, this was the fact that everybody loved him. You know, yeah. no, um, what, what I very rarely talk about is my subsequent boyfriend died as well. Okay. My subsequent partner. And who was he? His name was Michael. Who actually knew Robert, so, so if you like, he knew the baggage I was carrying. Did you meet through Robert? Uh, no, no, I met him separately. Robert really pissed me off one night and I picked this guy up. And, and then what did you say? What happened to him? Um, he was diagnosed. Um, he lived in a country where it was impossible to get... get um, care Mm -hmm. Um, and so so he was seen in London and um, I I think after Robert died I went through you know naturally I went through a period of depression and I got help I actually um, said to somebody can I talk to somebody please because it's a period when people hadn't been taking gay relationships seriously Mm. so partners you know, had no rights. And nobody thought the partners would actually suffer. And then after, I, th- I think after Michael died, um, 10 years later, after Robert died, Michael died, he was born on Christmas Day and died on Easter Sunday. Robert was born on <laughs> on Midsummer's Day and died on New Year's Eve. And you're going like, is there any day I cannot celebrate without... Um, and Michael died a few months before the introduction of, of combination therapy. Right. Um, you know, the ward was opened by this. And Robert died, of course, the year before the Princess Diana opened our first ward. When I say our, the place I've been working for. When I'd been diagnosed with Robert, of course, I'd been given two years to live. And I was still alive. In 96, and so after Michael died, I'm going like, you know, it wasn't survivor's guilt as much as to say, what is going on? And 96 combination therapy came out, and also the viral load test, something we totally take for granted. And I took the test, again, as part of the trial, I think, and uh, it kept coming back as negative. And I can remember the doctor saying, what's going on? We better do it again, must be a mistake. Three times, and... um, they didn't know about elite controllers and uh, people who have a lack of CCR5 receptors and, and things like that. So, you know, we're 1% of the HIV population. And <clears throat> so I was naturally undetectable. 
which was a huge relief because it meant I hadn't given HIV to Robert or Michael or anybody else I'd slept with. So Robert went to your parents, was it, did you spend Christmas at your parents then? Yeah. Uh, a week before he died. Like, yeah, yeah, everybody was here. Okay, right. That must have been quite, that's, that's a very positive attitude for your family, given the view of, like, from the rest of the world, of, you know, being worried about catching HIV, to have somebody who was... Family's love. I think we forget, in a strange kind of way, I, I can remember having lunch with, with Nick Partridge, and, and we actually feared that the HIV eruption, let's put it like that, thinking of volcanoes, would kill off Galen. In fact, it had the opposite effect, because everybody who got infected and possibly died had a mother, brother, sister, family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Partners suddenly were recognised. Mm-hmm. Families did not reject their children. We always hear about the stories of the people who did, but most did not. Mm-hmm. Most still do not. We only hear about, you know, I have been seeing for the last 10 years, I've been dealing with about 2,000 patients a year. And I can count on one hand the people who've been rejected. We hear about those, we don't hear about the people who actually love people and therefore support them. A very, very moving thing happened the year before last. It was the 30th anniversary of the ward opening. And I gathered together four of the doctors, you know, kind of I know, and I tracked down the, the sister of the ward. And a photographer called Gideon Mandela did a photographic project a few years, about six years after Diana opened it. And uh, as he put it, none of those boys survived more than a year after the photographs. In, in one of the photographs, there was uh, a woman sitting by the bedside of her son. I used to visit him. I knew him. And, you know, kind of, I was on the ward you got out of. He was on the ward you didn't get out, get out of. And I used to visit him. And on the last day of... And there was this exhibition in the old chapel of the old hospital, the Middlesex Hospital, of the photographs. On the last day she turned up, she heard about it on the BBC News. I hadn't seen her for 30-odd years. And she threw her arms around me. And... And uh, through that exhibition, I found out that one of my, uh, one of my friends um, lost her brother. He was in one of the photographs. I had no idea. Um, so she didn't reject her son. Um, yes, there was fear. Yes, there was ignorance. But, but this was counteracted by, by love. All the funerals were packed. Every funeral was absolutely packed with people. Nurses, doctors as well, because nurses and doctors, there was nothing they could do. They were helpless. People were dying and, you know, kind of a pretty awful death. Yeah. yeah. You, know? you had to be buried in concrete in the early days as well. You went to, you know, kind of... And we're lucky because we managed it so well in this country. And thank God we've got the NHS while we have it. So I don't think my family were exceptional. And I mean, he'd been like a son to them for, for so... For t- ten years, more or less. So, mm-hmm. so was that was that Christmas like a? I don't know. Sorry to put it, but was that Christmas like a normal Christmas? Did it, you know? Did things carry on as normal? Like oh yeah. Well, apart from him mucking it up, of course. Like no, but I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. Because I arrive on on Christmas Eve to see him, and he's sitting on his bed dressed. 
And he conned the doctors, or conned the nurses, to say the doctors allowed him out on Christmas Eve as well. And of course they hadn't. But, you know, this was him all over. So I put him in the car, drove around the corner, and there was one of the huge billboards saying, you know, AIDS equals death or something like that, you know. And and he burst into tears, and I thought, oh, this is going to be real. So there is my mother in in the kitchen here, sort of, you know, kind of, and everybody's preparing for Christmas Day, and I turn up with Robert. And he wanted a bath in his own bathroom, which is on the top floor, and he was light enough for me to carry in my arms up to the top floor. And that shocked me, I think. So, and then I took him back to hospital later that day, and then I picked him up on Christmas morning, Mm -hmm. and... Yes, I think. I think what was good, one of my sisters just had a baby. So we had a baby crawling around on the floor as well. So he had this slightly Buddhist thing of, right, he was leaving, the baby was coming, arriving. And I took him back into hospital. So we, we had Christmas Day as normal as possible, I think. Um, I think we all knew. And I took him back to the hospital and his spleen burst. And this junior doctor, you know, short straw, Christmas Day, sort of said, does he know he's dying? And I say, yes. And the doctor bursts into tears. And I have a doctor crying on my shoulder. So um, he said, I think we should start the diamorphine, you know, which is, um, and I, I agreed. Because mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's, that's, and makes it, if you like, a painless death. Yeah. And, um, so he never came out again, and sort of, and, um, and so, so yeah. You said that you said that you found out that he had been seeing somebody else or had cheated on you doing. Well, no, being be casual. Um, and you said it was a week before, so it had been around. I, it may have been, yeah, it may have been that time we were lying on I think we were lying on the bed after he'd had a bath right and did you did you kind of know anyway then? I wasn't surprised yeah. you know what I mean sort of you know kind of you know, I, I think there's that I was travelling quite a lot you know I've been doing productions in strange places you know for yeah, national theatre and things like that so so um, you know I mean I'd be away for periods of time uh, and you know, kind of, I wasn't always monogamous. Mm-hmm. I think I'd be better now at it. When you found out that you had HIV, you were told you were going to die in two years. Oh, yeah, I was given two years. Robert was given three months, and we made turned it into say five years. And I was given two years, and I've turned it into decades. Yeah, decades. <laughs> but they didn't know. Yeah, there's a new discovery every week. You know what I mean, sir? Isn't that a bit scary, though? I mean, obviously, but like, sort of, when that two years comes to an end, nobody said to you, "You're fine now." No, 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 no. But but, yeah, doctors like that. Mm. You know, it's like you know, I've had a transplant recently, and they tell you not to do long haul, but they don't tell you when you can. Right. You know what I mean? Sort of, you know. Then didn't that always sort of wasn't that always hanging over your head? Yes. Well, I called it a Damoclean sword. When is it going to happen? And but I but the point is, I was. Younger, healthy, I just carried on. Right. 
I, I mean, I think Robert and I decided we just carried on. Mm-hmm. You know, we we didn't want this to dominate our lives and to be in control of us. We wanted to be in control of it. Mm-hmm. And part, and that's not denial. That's getting on with your mm-hmm. life. So, so I think there was, a, and then, then I slightly switched to Stonewall, mainly because uh, Robert left a will. I had no legal rights. His family challenged the will. Oh fuck! Yes, I know. So, fuck. Yes, I think four years it took to resolve. And they didn't come to his funeral. His mother had died already. I'd never spoke to his mother. I and I, could, I used to have a phone on the on the on the wall over there. Well. And a friend of ours drove me home. I was like in bits. Um, I think it was about nine fifteen. He he died. Anyway, and then he was zipped up, and I couldn't see him again. So. And I came home and rang his father in South Africa from the phone. And his father said, there's no need for me to come, is there? So I went, no. And then... That really upset me. Uh, yeah, I bet. And then how long after did they challenge the world? So he, he wrote a world leaving yeah. stuff to you. Yeah. And then they challenged Yeah, it. yeah. You, you just have to shut down on that kind of thing. I mean, but, but that's why the civil partnerships were so important mm-hmm. and I think this strange thing was you know Nick and my fear that it would do away with gay lib in in fact it reinforced mm-hmm. yeah. gay relationships right. and it was because I think so many families recognised relationships and why civil partnership you know it's, civil partnership has not been around that long look at all the surprise when 27,000 people in one year, I think it was, all get hitched. Yeah. All in long-term relationship. Hello, gays have relationships. So, what's it like being... Are you, you're 71, aren't you? 72. 72. 72 now. <laughs> what's it like being 72 a gay, then? I, I would say... It's... How can I put it? You can get sex any time you want in London. Mm. Even at 72. Finding finding love and relationships is slightly more difficult, I think. Yeah. You know, because because I I think people, I, quite frankly, if you have a relationship for ten years, you're lucky, and that's both straight and gay. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, sort of you may stay together for other reasons, children, or you for companionship. The building societies know that the seven year itch happens after seven years. That's when people move house because relationships need something to, you know, to bolster them up again. You know, to, a, a, a challenge, something to do together. Um, and I, I find, um, I mean, it is. I've had quite a few flings, but nothing permanent. Mm-hmm. Nothing longer than about three years since my last long-term relationship, eight years, uh, finished, and that's ten years ago. Mm-hmm. So um, they tend to be with younger people, mm-hmm. uh, which is good because, you know, kind of as you get older, it gets more difficult. So it's nice to have somebody who doesn't have problems with sex. You know, um, I've always been into... Uh, people keep saying, oh, put a profile on Grindr or Tinder or, you know, kind of one of the dating apps. And I have got friends who are in very nice relationships on Tinder. 
it's not me. Yeah. I prefer to try a sofa before I buy it. And I, I still meet people, dinner parties, theatre, in the street. And my younger pickups say, you meet people in the street? Oh, God, well, that's what apps are for. I had somebody say, and you're getting like, yeah, yeah, but you could, you know, open your eyes. And the point is, you know, I, I, you know, I get so many clients or patients, whatever you want to call, who, who you know, travel all the way across London and they get the door slammed in their face. Well, that is incredibly hurtful. And so many people go, I'm, I'm you know, getting rid of the apps, etc., etc. But there's nothing in the place. You used to go out to pubs or clubs, you know what I mean? pick up mm. but now you very rarely see single people now they're all in pairs right. or, or meeting up yeah. you know in the the dying gay scene mm-hmm. um so I'm, I'm finding yeah i'm finding it a little bit strange no shortage of yeah god flirt people flirting with me you know which is quite nice but yeah, but it's and then, then you meet somebody and you think, oh, this is, this is quite nice. You know, kind of, you spend four hours in bed instead of just a quick one. You know what I mean? And might have di- you know, dinner afterwards or whatever. And then, yeah, you know, kind of then nothing develops. Mm-hmm. I think that's true of every, everybody. Yeah, I know it is. Yeah. I gave up about three or four years ago sort of going to, to those kind of places. Right. You can have a fumble in a back room. Fine. Great fun. Mm-hmm. But I can empty a back room by saying not without a condom. You know what I mean? Sort of. I tend to be. I tend to want to be honest, mm-hmm. and it's nice when somebody says, "Well, as far as I understand, you know, it's safer to be with you than anybody else." That's nice. <laughs> then you meet up again, and no, they're not the same sober. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Chris for speaking to me. I'm just very sorry it's taken me so long to publish the episode. If you want to watch the film that Chris spoke about that he worked on producing through his work at Bloomsbury, I've attached a link in the episode description. And on the matter of a second series, I'd like to ask anyone from the LGBTQ plus community who's listened to this episode, who might live in a country where it's difficult to be queer, or who's moved from a place where being LGBTQ plus isn't as accepted as it is in some countries, to get in touch with me. Or if you know anyone who's had that experience, I would love to talk to them, even if they don't want to be recorded. So please get in touch with me either through email, which is queermargins at gmail.com, or through Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, which is at queermargins. Thank you again to Chris and thank you for listening.